Good evening. All right, Lila Tov, right, Dr. Curtis? Lila Tov, yes. Let's go ahead and begin our time with, uh, with prayer uh, here as we start our evening together, and then uh, I'll have a number of introductions uh, to make. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time here together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege of gathering together this evening to be challenged in our thinking uh, and also to have a, a lecture given this evening in, in honor of one of our much-loved professors from the past, uh, Dr. J.G. Voss. And so, Lord, we ask that you uh, be with us tonight, that you be present with us, that you, by the power of your Spirit, teach us this evening as we reflect together upon your Word and upon uh, really important things. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Tonight's event is part of the college's annual Geneva Visiting Artist and Lecture Series, and you should know it's generously funded by the Staley Distinguished Christian Scholar Lecture Series Endowment. It's a very long name there. The Iva E. Patterson and Dale Gilmore Visiting Artist and Lecture Series Fund endowed by Paul Gilmore, class of 1931. The lecture tonight is an annual event held here at Geneva College called the J.G. Voss Memorial Lecture in Biblical Theology. J.G. Voss, or Johannes Gerhardus Voss, was a much-loved professor who taught Bible here at Geneva College from 1954 until his retirement in 1973. His father, Gerhardus Voss, was also a professor of Bible and theology, not here at Geneva, but at Princeton Theological Seminary in the second quarter of the 20th century. The major scholarly contribution of Geneva's J.G. Voss was the taking of his father's lecture notes from Princeton Theological Seminary, editing them, and preparing them for publication. That book was published in 1948 under his father's name as, quote, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments. This book, this book, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments, has influenced several generations of pastors and scholars in the Reformed tradition. In past years, Raymond Voss, one of the sons of J.G. Voss, has joined us for this annual lecture. However, I heard uh, earlier last week that uh, Raymond is under the weather and not as mobile as he used to be in his younger years, and so he is unable to be with us uh, here this evening. However, I understand that there may be members of the Voss family here tonight. Uh, is Ben or Ruby Voss here today? Are Ben and Ruby Voss here today? Doesn't look like it. We were hoping that they'd be able to attend here uh, with us this evening. So now on to tonight's, tonight's speaker. It's indeed a pleasure to introduce Dr. Andreas J. Kostenberger. Dr. Kostenberger is a prolific New Testament scholar with a plethora of books and articles to his credit. For 22 years, he served as the research professor for New Testament and biblical theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, uh, 
North Carolina, followed by four years serving in the same role at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. In addition to all that, Dr. Kostenberger also served for 22 years as the editor of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Andreas's wife, Marnie, is with us here this evening as well. Marnie is a fine biblical scholar in her own right, with a number of publications to her credit. She holds the Doctor of Theology from the University of South Africa. Together, Marnie and Andreas have founded the organization Biblical Foundations. Biblical Foundations exists to help restore the biblical foundations for the church, the family, and society, and you're invited to visit their website that has a number of articles and other resources. That's uh, biblicalfoundations.org, so please put that on your list of websites to peruse. Several of Andreas's and Marnie's books are on display in the book table off to my right. Please stop by to check them out, but don't take any. Those are my personal books. There are no copies here available for sale, but as you peruse them and you see something that looks interesting, you can always go to Amazon.com. The title of tonight's lecture is Toward a Biblical Theology of Gender, a Timely Topic Indeed. And so let's give a hearty Geneva College welcome to Dr. Andreas J. Kostenberger. Well, good evening. Uh, it's a great privilege to present the Voss Lecture here at Geneva College tonight. I honor the memory of uh, J.G. Voss and of the greatest respect for his father, Gerhardus Voss's work, especially in the area of biblical theology. As one who's recently written a biblical theology myself, I appreciate the care Voss has taken to define his terms, uh, to lay out his method, and to execute it to perfection in his landmark biblical theology. And if my math is right, this year marks the 75-year anniversary of the publication of Voss's work. My topic tonight is Gerhardus Voss's uh, Method and the Biblical Theology of Gender. For purposes of this lecture, I'll define gender as biological male-female differences and the various cultural ways in which the creational distinctions between male and female are manifested. And I realize at this cultural moment, some might define gender differently, but for our purposes tonight, this will have to do. Uh, but before I develop the idea of a biblical theology of gender in conjunction with Voss's writings, I'd like to highlight five hallmarks of his method. Uh, method is important. And so the first thing to note about Voss's method is that it puts God first. Voss's method is nothing if not unapologetically and unequivocally God-prioritizing. At the outset, he cites Thomas Aquinas' maxim that theology is, and I translate from the Latin, taught by God, teaches God, and leads to God. Ad deu docetur, deum docet, ad deum ducet. So God is the be-all and end-all of biblical theology. This uh, theocentricity is all the more remarkable 
in view of the fact that Voss wrote his magnum opus in a kind of theological vacuum during the first half of the 20th century. Now, despite the title of Voss's work, Biblical Theology, Voss himself preferred to speak instead of the history of special revelation. Correspondingly, what he does in his 400-plus pages of his work is examine the history of God's revelation in two major epochs of salvation history, the Mosaic and the prophetic period, in which includes Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. As such, Voss aims to trace the, and I quote him here, uh, the organic growth of the truths of special revelation. In terms of overall scope, Voss's biblical theology starts with Eden and ends with Jesus' preaching of the kingdom. It may appear, therefore, that his work is unfinished, as he doesn't cover uh, Paul's letters, the general epistles, and Revelation. However, Voss didn't set out to write a whole Bible biblical theology, but instead endeavored to trace the history of divine revelation in Scripture, just like we may feel Mark didn't properly conclude his gospel, or Acts breaks off prematurely, Voss's work may appear to conclude earlier than it should, but at a closer look, we realize that Voss did accomplish his stated purpose, since he viewed Jesus as the climax of divine revelation. In keeping with the opening words of Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. A second hallmark of Voss's approach to biblical theology is his focus on the text. Here I detect certain affinities between Voss and one of my other theological heroes, the Swiss theologian Adolf Schlatter. Voss asserts categorically that in biblical theology, exegesis is primary. As such, the accurate interpretation of Scripture requires what he calls a receptive attitude on part of the interpreter and is, quote, eminently a process in which God speaks and man listens. Similarly, Schlatter called for a hermeneutic of perception that consists first and foremost in seeing what is there. Rather than focus on what's behind or in front of the text, faithful biblical interpreters and theologians ought to fix their minds on what is actually in the text. I might add that this would be a good rule of thumb for preachers as well. Uh, third, therefore, and this follows seamlessly from some of the things I've said already, uh, we observe in Voss's work a strong prior conviction that in Scripture we encounter progressive divine revelation. This progress of revelation, its organic growth, is from seed to fullness. In a qualitative sense, the seed is no less perfect than the tree. The organic character of Revelation also explains what Voss calls its multiformity, that is, its diversity. Thus, Voss grounds both Scripture's unity and its diversity in the God who dis disclosed himself to his people over the course of redemptive history. What's more for Voss, God is not an abstract concept or even a literary theme. Knowing God in the Semitic sense is not mere intellectual knowing, but more importantly, loving God. 
Hence the backbone of Old Testament revelation is not some kind of school, but a series of covenants. In my own biblical theology, I've similarly chosen to focus on the revelation of God's love for humanity in Scripture, coupled with God's desire that the objects of his love reciprocate this love and express it in devoted service and worship, as well as in love toward one another. So to summarize what we've seen thus far, Voss's method is God-centered, focuses on exegesis and the text, and traces the unfolding of divine revelation in human history. The fourth plank in Voss's method is, is its historical orientation. Here, Voss credits the father of biblical theology, J.P. Gobbler, for his distinction between what Gobbler called dogmatic and biblical theology, and for affirming the historical nature of biblical theology in the context of the prevailing rationalism and widespread disparagement of history in his day. Yet Voss points out that not just any historical work will do. He writes, tracing the truth historically, but with a lack of fundamental piety, so-called theology has lost the right of calling itself theology. The problem is Voss sees it, and I couldn't agree with him more, is not the use of reason, but irreverence and rebellion against divine revelation and ultimately against God himself. We, we see this irreverence and rebellion of which Voss speaks perhaps nowhere more clearly in Scripture than in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are convicting words. We'll return to this passage later on in his lecture when developing a biblical theology of gender. Fifth and finally, Voss provides a very useful discussion of the practical utility of biblical theology. Biblical theology is not merely an arid academic exercise. It's of great value for the church. He points out that biblical theology exhibits the organic growth of revelation and by so doing supplies a, quote, special argument from design for the reality of supernaturalism. By paying careful attention to the impressive divine revelation in Scripture, biblical theology also demonstrates its apologetic value and, quote, supplies us with a useful antidote against rationalistic criticism. At its core, biblical theology is spiritually nurturing. It, quote, imparts new life and freshness to the truth by showing it to us in its original historical setting. Biblical theology also shows the indispensable nature of the doctrinal groundwork of our beliefs. Doctrine matters, and biblical theology competently engaged in 
underscores the importance of right beliefs in keeping with God's own self-disclosure throughout Scripture. What's more, biblical theology helps us to move beyond isolated proof texts to an organic system that surfaces important interconnections along the spectrum of divine revelation in salvation history. Most importantly, the supreme end of biblical theology is the glory of God. Biblical theology gives us a new view of God in displaying the diverse aspects of his divine nature. With this, let's move on to my primary assignment and purpose for tonight. Reconstructing and where needed expanding upon a biblical theology of gender from Boss's biblical theology. In so doing, I'm faced with several limitations. First, and this is rather obvious, Boss himself didn't write a biblical theology of gender. Not only this, second, he didn't consistently trace this theme in his biblical theology. The primary entry point is therefore Voss's overall approach, which conceives of biblical theology as the history of special revelation grounded in the self-disclosing God. As mentioned, according to Voss, this history proceeded in two primary stages, the Mosaic and the prophetic period, the latter of which includes Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. Third, while Voss didn't write a biblical theology of gender as such, I believe that he's given us a skeleton, a framework within which we can flesh out a more robust biblical theology of gender as he might have developed it. In particular, we find in Voss's work a very helpful treatment of the Genesis 3 narrative, from which we can glean his views as to how the fall affected humanity, specifically as male and female. I've already quoted Paul's indictment of sinful humanity in Romans 1, 18 to 23. In these remarks, Paul makes clear that the problem with humanity is not the lack of divine revelation, but rather the fact that humans sinfully suppress the knowledge of God that is, or at least should be, evident to them. God has made his invisible attributes, his divine power and nature, plain to his creatures in the universe he has made. Thus, humanity's problem is not ignorance of God, but rather the fact that they've suppressed the God they knew, or at least should have known, the God who has revealed himself to them in nature. First, creation. Building on this foundational insight regarding the human predicament, Paul proceeds to elaborate in the remainder of chapter 1 of Romans on the way in which sinful humans suppress their knowledge of God. Paul writes, Therefore God gave him up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, but the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We see here that the preeminent example Paul gives is people's dishonoring of their bodies among themselves in form of dishonorable passions. 
which Paul describes as women exchanging natural relations with unnatural ones, namely being consumed with sexual passion for other women, and men committing shameless acts with other men. Paul attributes this unnatural way of relating to a debased mind resulting in shameless acts. He notes first that people who do such things receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Second, as a result of their rejection of divine revelation, and more specifically, their rejection of God's creation of them as male and female, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, the dishonoring of their bodies, and a debased mind. Three times, Paul asserts that God gave sinful humanity up to their own devices since they rejected him. As Voss puts it, while creation in God's image has supplied humans with both a religious consciousness and a moral conscience, sin has led to a condition in which humanity's religious and moral sense of God has become, quote, blunted and blinded. Third, by engaging in unnatural relations, these people who have suppressed divine revelation have done what ought not to be done. That is, they've acted contrary to God's righteous and holy purpose for them as men and women. In large part, one surmises this is so because such same-sex acts cannot naturally lead to the procreation of children. Also, Paul describes these acts in verse 24 as being motivated by lust. Fourth, by acting in such an unnatural way, people dishonor God and withhold from him the respect and glory he rightly deserves. Not only do such individuals engage in acts that dishonor the Creator and rob Him of His glory, they also hardly approve of others who do the same. This underscores the importance of denying such individuals the acceptance of their sinful conduct they so desperately crave. Thus we see that Scripture grounds the biblical teaching on gender identities and roles in God's revelation in and through creation. While Voss doesn't explicitly draw this connection in his biblical theology, I think it's entirely reasonable to infer that he would have connected Paul's affirmations in Romans 1 regarding God's revelation in creation with the human rejection of God's design for man and woman, resulting in blameworthy unnatural acts. And like Paul, Voss would have doubtless grounded special revelation regarding God's design for man and woman profoundly in natural revelation. Second, the fall. While Voss doesn't elaborate on humanity's rejection of the Creator's design as revealed in the creation narrative, he does provide, as I mentioned, a rather thorough discussion of humanity's plight resulting from the fall in a chapter called The Content of Pre-Redemptive Special Revelation. He picks up the biblical storyline by speaking of four elements. Life, represented by the tree of life. Probation, represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Temptation, which entered the garden in form of a serpent, and death, resulting in the dissolution of the body. Life in the garden entails living in intimate fellowship with God. Yet after their rebellion, the man and the woman are expelled from God's presence and ultimately die. Probation consisted in the challenge of obeying God's command out of sheer obedience, simply because of the nature of God, which Adam and Eve failed to do. Temptation entered in form of a real serpent and a real evil spirit. In this regard, Voss rejects the notion that the serpent approached the woman in the garden because she was more open to temptation and prone to sin. Rather, he believes, the reason may have been that the woman had not personally received the prohibition from God as Adam had. One might infer from this that direct reception of the command from God bestows on the man 
greater overall responsibility as Paul teaches in both 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. The temptation itself, according to Voss, took place in two stages. An injection of an innocent kind of doubt into the woman's mind and a serious form of doubt that cast off all disguise and directly challenged the veracity of God's command. Voss sees here in the biblical text a hint that the woman, while seeking to defend God, had already entertained the thought that the prohibition was too severe, especially in the fact that she adds the bit about not even touching the tree. Voss proceeds to argue from the Hebrew-fronted position of the negative pronoun that special emphasis is drawn to God's alleged selfish motives for issuing the command. He adds that it wasn't merely the aesthetic appeal of the forbidden fruit that induced the woman to eat. Rather, by yielding to the serpent, the woman in effect put the serpent in the place of God. She trusted that the serpent had her best interest at heart while God didn't. This is assuredly a profound insight. Sin in effect puts Satan in place of the creator by giving him and his reasoning first place and first priority. With this, let's move on to the third movement in the biblical storyline, redemption, starting with the immediate aftermath of the fall. In his chapter on the content of the first redemptive special revelation, Voss observes that in the aftermath of the fall, God's characteristic saving disposition is at once evident. There's both justice and grace. Justice is manifested in the three curses on the serpent, the woman, and Adam, though technically only the ground is cursed, not the man or the woman, while grace is implied in the promise that the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's head. The promise of victory over the serpent, for its part, reveals God's sovereign initiative in deliverance. It signals a reversal of the attitude by which humanity is realigned with the Creator, accentuates the continuity of the work of deliverance by perennially pitting the woman's against the serpent's seed, and foretells ongoing enmity between sinful humanity in need of future redemption and personal evil supernatural forces. In this regard, Voss aptly notes that the effects of the fall are not merely generic, but gender-specific. Under the heading Human Suffering, he observes that the woman is condemned to suffer in what constitutes her nature as woman. The effects of the fall extend particularly to her role as the man's companion and the mother of children. Her relationship with her husband will now be characterized by continual struggle for control, her desire will be to control her husband, Genesis 3.16, while giving birth to children will be accompanied by labor pains. With regard to Adam, Voss notes that, quote, the punishment of man consists in toil unto death. The curse consists in the fact that, objectively, the productivity of nature is impaired by the presence of thorns and thistles. And yet, quote, as the woman is enabled to bring new life into the world, so the man will be enabled to support life by his toil. Both the woman and the man will experience labor and pain in their own world and primary domain. The woman in relation to the man from whom and for whom she was made, the man in relation to the ground from which he was made. 
In his ensuing discussion of the patriarchal and mosaic periods, Voss doesn't explicitly address how God's subsequent revelation in Scripture relates to the redemption and restoration of the male-female relationship in Christ. However, he does establish a broad general framework for such a discussion, on which more in a moment. In his discussion of the prophetic period, Voss provides a helpful and relevant treatment of Hosea's teaching on the spiritual marriage bond between God and Israel. Voss observes that Yahweh initiated the union, which had a definite historical beginning at the Exodus. Israel was led freely to enter the union, which at the root was spiritual in nature. In the beginning, Yahweh is depicted as wooing Israel for her affection. Later, Yahweh, despite Israel's sin, continues to furnish proofs of his love to draw her back to himself. At the same time, the spiritual union between God and Israel is not merely a matter of love and affection. It is a legally defined relationship. Israel is not merely deficient in love and affection. She has broken covenant with her God. Voss also notes that the covenant is a national covenant. Nevertheless, there are important individual implications. If Yahweh is Israel's husband and she his wife, then by implication, individual Israelites are God's children. Voss doesn't directly address the fourth and final redemptive movement in scripture, consummation, and its implications for biblical theology of gender, though he does include a brief section entitled Glimpses of Consummation. According to Voss, future redemption and consummation are signaled by the eschatological teaching in the prophets. This is evident especially in the depiction of future glory in the book of Isaiah. In this regard, Voss observes that it's only a small step of transition from a restored Canaan to a restored paradise. Isaiah even speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. In conjunction with the expectation of future deliverance and eternal glory, Voss also discusses the concept of the personal Messiah in passages such as Isaiah 9 and the figure of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 53. With this, we conclude a brief survey of the relevant portions in Voss's biblical theology regarding a biblical theology of gender. Before we proceed, though, to put some further flesh on the bones, there's one more important broader topic uh, we must address, namely Voss's discussion of the structure of New Testament revelation. This will have an important bearing on how we construe the relationship between divine revelation in the Old Testament through Jesus and through Paul and the other apostles and New Testament writers. Voss identifies three primary ways of discerning the New Testament's internal organization. First, we can discern the New Testament's uh, organization from indications in the Old Testament. Indications in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is forward-looking, featuring eschatological and messianic prophecy. In fact, as Voss observes, the Old Testament, through its prophetic attitude, postulates the new. Second, we can discern the New Testament structure from the teachings of Jesus, especially regarding the way in which the new covenant fulfills God's previous covenants with his people. At the establishment of the Lord's Supper, Jesus spoke of my blood of a covenant or the new covenant in my blood as a climax of the series of covenants God had made with Israel. Third, we can discern the New Testament's organization from the teachings of Paul and the other apostles. According to Voss, quote, Paul is in the New Testament the great exponent 
of the fundamental bisection in the history of redemption and of revelation in that he distinguishes between the new and the old covenant, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Voss observes that when looking at the teaching of the prophets, Jesus, and the apostles, one finds that, quote, the New Testament revelation is one organic and itself completed whole. The apostles, for their part, are witnesses and interpreters of the Christ. In this regard, interestingly, Voss speaks out against the notion of going back from the apostles, including Paul, to Jesus. Rather, Christ himself is, quote, the center of a movement of revelation organized around him. At the same time, Jesus nowhere presents himself as the exhaustive expounder of truth. Instead, he's the great fact to be expounded. In this way, Jesus, and I quote Voss again, interweaves and accompanies the creation of the facts with a preliminary illumination of them, for by the side of his work stands his teaching. Jesus' teaching, therefore, serves as the embryo, which in, quote, indistinct fashion, yet truly contains the structure which the full-grown organism will clearly exhibit. God's revelation in the Old Testament period is the overture to the New Testament. Christ is what Voss calls the consummator of God's salvation promises. And the third epoch of revelation is still future, the apocalypse. In the time that remains, I'd like to sketch briefly what a theology of gender within the general parameters established by Voss in his biblical theology might look like. My wife and I have co-authored a volume entitled God's Design for Man and Woman, in which we discuss the biblical teaching on gender in four movements, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And what we propose is that at creation, God's design for man and woman was revealed. At the fall, God's design was corrupted. Through redemption in Christ, God's design is being restored. And at the final consummation, God's design will be completed. To elaborate a bit further on the first of these four movements, creation, God's design for man and woman revealed in creation entails God's creation of the man first from the ground and then his creation of the woman from the man as a suitable helper or counterpart to provide him with companionship and to partner with him in filling the earth and exercising dominion over it. Thus we see in the scriptural creation narrative a harmonious picture of the man and the woman partnering in ruling the earth as God's representatives with the man serving as the God-appointed leader. The second movement, the fall as mentioned, witnesses the corruption, though by no means obliteration of God's design. As Voss has ably demonstrated, sin struck the man and the woman, each in their respective primary domains, indicated by the source from which God created them. Sin introduced friction between the man and the ground from which he was made, and he will experience labor pains in his work. Sin also introduced friction between the woman and the man from, which she, from whom she was made, resulting in relational tension and the struggle for control, as well as labor pains in the childbearing realm, which God uniquely assigned to the woman. In this way, sin didn't merely have generic consequences, such as universal physical and spiritual death, but also gender-specific ones that accentuate that God made the man and the woman to inhabit different primary spheres. 
This is clear both before and after the fall. Already before the fall, God had assigned the cultivation of the garden to man, not to mention uh, naming the animals, and had issued to the man the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fact that the punishment for sin affects the man most centrally in the area of his work merely reinforces that this was the primary domain he was originally designed by God, assigned by God, along with the responsibility to provide for and to protect the woman and eventually his entire family as well. Similarly, the woman was meant from the very beginning to complement the man and to partner with him in ruling the earth, in part by procreation, conceiving and giving birth to children, and nurturing and caring for them in conjunction with her husband. Again, the punishment for sin only accentuated, but did not create, this primary domain of responsibility and fruitfulness. Moving on to the third movement in the biblical meta-narrative, redemption, we've seen that Voss subsumes the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, under the prophetic period of divine revelation. Interestingly, as mentioned, his biblical theology concludes not with the New Testament letters of Revelation, but with Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. As to the structure of New Testament revelation, we've seen that Voss argues that it can be discerned from indications in the Old Testament, the teaching of Jesus, and the teachings of Paul and the other apostles, whereby Jesus provides the climax of the Old Testament revelation. Applied to a biblical theology of gender, this implies that we ought to give pride of place to the divine revelation in and through Jesus' teaching and actions. While Paul and the other apostles should be seen as applying the revelation mediated through Jesus to the life, to life in the apostolic era, the age of the church and of the spirit. So here then are seven observations that flow from Jesus' words and actions, including ways in which Paul and other New Testament, later New Testament writers applied those principles. First, to begin with, uh, Jesus was incarnated as male, corresponding to the first man, Adam, the fact that implies male headship as we've seen in our discussion of God's design established at creation. The Apostle Paul reiterated this connection at some length at Romans 5, 12 to 21, which proves that Jesus' incarnation as male was essential rather than arbitrary. On the basis of the principle of federal headship, God made Jesus the sinless head of a new humanity just like Adam was the head of original humanity which succumbed to sin at the fall. Second, Jesus addressed his proclamation of God's kingdom to both men and women, recounting anecdotes or using illustrations relevant to both. Paul teased out the implications of this principle when he wrote that in Christ there's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. Third, in the Sermon on the Mount, in relation to Mosaic revelation in the law, and specifically the sixth commandment, Jesus deepened the prohibition against adultery by including lust in a man's heart. Fourth, in the same body of teaching, Jesus similarly reaffirmed God's original prohibition of divorce. When later asked about divorce, Jesus cited God's original design of monogamous, lifelong marriage, implicitly rejecting same-sex marriage, and adduced God's original design laid out in the creation narrative. Have you not read? He went on to declare Mosaic divorce legislation in Deuteronomy 24 is only temporary, rejecting all divorce except in cases of porneia, adultery. Paul reiterated Jesus' teaching 
in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 and built on it by adding a clause regarding the abandonment of marriage by the unbelieving spouse. In the same context, Paul reaffirmed Jesus' teaching on singleness, noting by way of concession not command that some may remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, a calling that Paul referred to as a gift from God, again echoing Jesus' teaching. Fifth, Jesus taught throughout his ministry that discipleship takes precedence over family ties. Spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood transcend natural flesh and blood ties. Though Jesus, of course, still honored his parents and related to his half-brothers and sisters in a loving and even redemptive manner. An example of this is Jesus' declaration that no one who loves father and mother more than him is fit for the kingdom. As well as his statement that the would-be follower who asked if he could first go home and bury his father should let the dead bury the dead. Jesus also said that he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and that he would set the members of a household against one another in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Sixth, Jesus continued the pattern of male leadership by calling 12 men as his apostles. His new messianic community patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel, which likewise had men serve in a headship capacity. This pattern continues in the church's leadership of male elders and is symbolized by the 24 elders in Revelation. Seventh, last but not least, Jesus affirmed women as disciples and witnesses of the resurrection. He insisted that Mary chose the right place when sitting at his feet to learn from him. Uh, he was followed and even financially supported by a group of women who are first mentioned at the midway point of Jesus' ministry and shown to follow Jesus all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. Following the resurrection, Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene, who brought the message of the risen Jesus to Peter and John in a day when the witness of women was not recognized as valid in a Jewish court of law. In all these and other ways, we see Jesus variously reiterate and reaffirm God's original design for man and woman, deepen and even transcend Mosaic revelation, and enunciate God's revelation with regard to gender identities and roles, for his generation and for all time. Finally, let me say a word about the fourth movement in scripture, uh, consummation. Here you'll recall that Voss only provided general glimpses of consummation, but didn't specifically address implications for biblical theology of gender. One of the most important data in this regard comes from Jesus himself. When asked about marriage in heaven by his opponents, who ironically didn't believe in the resurrection in the first place, Jesus declared that there'll be no marriage in heaven, but all will be like the angels, Matthew 22:30. This has an important bearing on how we are to understand the fourth movement in the biblical story as it pertains to gender. In the eternal state, God's spiritual relationship with his people, which as we've seen has been compared to human marriage in prophetic books such as Hosea, will culminate in the spiritual marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church, which Revelation depicts symbolically as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Thus, God's people will be corporately united with Christ for all eternity. As the seer writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, 2 and 3. 
Soon thereafter, John receives a vision of the bride, the wife of the Lamb, Revelation 21.9 through 22.5. Revelation ends with the Spirit and the bride longingly plea for Jesus to come soon. And Jesus promising that he will indeed come soon. Thus, Jesus will forever be the church's loving, spiritual husband who sacrificially laid down his life for her, while she will be responsive to him and joyfully yield to his lordship in complete trust and blessedness. All right, then, let me conclude our sketch of the biblical theology of manhood and womanhood within a Vossian framework with a few final observations, just by way of summary. First, we saw that God's original design for man and woman revealed and established at creation is foundational for life on this earth, even for sinful men and women subsequent to the fall, though the eternal state will transcend the earthly arrangement and witness a spiritual marriage between Christ the bridegroom and redeemed humanity the church as a spiritual bride. Second, we saw that the biblical teaching on gender supports Voss's illustration of divine redemption in which there's no qualitative difference between revelation in seed form and revelation in its full or tree form as seen in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. This is evident in the fact that both Jesus and Paul reiterate God's original design and apply it to various ministry and ecclesiastical contexts. Thus, Paul declares that the union of two becoming one in marriage serves to illustrate the spiritual union between Christ and his church, Ephesians 5.32. This continuity speaks decisively against any proposals that claim that there is a qualitative difference between God's design for man and woman at creation and that revealed in later human history. Third, Voss's proposal that Jesus is the climax of Scripture's prophetic divine revelation, when applied to biblical theology of gender, elevates Jesus above later New Testament voices, suggesting that the role of Paul and the other apostles and New Testament writers was primarily that of application. Thus, one shouldn't expect Paul to add any qualitatively new or different element to the teaching provided by Jesus, who in turn, as we've seen, essentially sought redemptively to restore by the power of the Spirit God's original design revealed and established at creation. Fourth and finally, with regard to the progressive principle posited uh, by Voss, we observe that such a progression should be understood within the context of his seed to tree analogy. This is very different than the redemptive movement trajectory hermeneutic advocated by William Webb, which stipulates a kind of progression that extrapolates from movements in redemptive history and forecasts endpoints not spelled out in Scripture. This procedure sets a very dangerous precedent by advocating that the church move beyond the Bible. I trust you found these reflections faithful to Voss and the teachings of Scripture. God's design for man and woman is an important test case for biblical theology and biblical fidelity in our day, when many in our culture, and even some in the church, think they can improve upon God's good, wise, and beautiful design. The assertion that God created humanity, male and female, which until recently could be all but taken for granted, 
has become highly controversial, even offensive, in the past few years. It is my hope that these brief remarks may contribute to greater clarity in understanding the divine revelation of God's design for man and woman, in keeping with sound biblical theological method, as undergirded by reverence for God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Thank you very much.